Good morning. <clears throat> my name is Joshua, and uh, this morning I have the privilege of having my parents here, Jim and Jenny. So if things go, things go badly, you know who to blame, all right? <laughs> well, as uh, many of you know, my wife Naomi and I have, have served the Lord as international missionaries with the mission agency Reach Global for the last 20 years, including eight years in northern Spain and, and 10 years in Mexico City, Mexico. Uh, in my, my current role, my new role as a director for church planting and development in Latin America, uh, my primary focus is developing and training our missionaries and national partners throughout Latin America so that together we might have an even greater gospel impact throughout the entire region. Now, as you can imagine, during uh, 20 years of missionary service, I've learned a few things about missions, and especially about partnership. In fact, at this point in my life, I'm pretty convinced that working in partnership with like-minded, gospel-centered, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving churches and organizations is central to our ability to have widespread gospel impact throughout our world. We are simply not enough on our own, nor were we ever meant to be. We are better together as God's people. And that's true for the on-the-ground partnerships on the mission field. And it's also true of these strategic partnerships that we have between U.S. churches and their missionaries serving internationally. It is that local church missionary relationship that I would like to focus on this morning. So let me pray. I'll have the Lord lead our time. Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you, of giving us your word to speak to us about who you are and what it means to follow you and what it means to follow you together. I ask God this morning that you'll speak through your word to help us understand exactly that as members of your people, your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the heart of effective global missions is a relationship, a collaborative partnership between missionary teams and the local churches that support them. Local churches, like Flint Hills Bible Church, simply cannot reach the world without faithful missionaries willing to go. And missionaries cannot reach the world without the faithful partnership and support of local churches. When this partnership is done well, it can be one of the most beautiful, encouraging, and impactful relationships in the world. A relationship that enables and empowers God's people to truly make disciples of all nations and so fulfill the great commission to the glory of God. However, when that church missionary relationship goes poorly, it can be one of the most toxic, damaging, and heart-wrenching relationships that I have ever seen, leaving a trail of mistrust, damaged people, broken relationships, and ultimately ineffective gospel ministry. Or to put it another way, when local church missionary relationships go well, they can go really well. But when they go bad, they can go really, really bad. 
Pretty much every missionary I know has experienced both sides of that coin. And I suspect that local churches and their leaders would say the exact same thing about themselves. So what does it look like for a local church, like Flint Hills Bible Church, to faithfully support missionaries as gospel partners, and so become what the Apostle John calls in 3 John, fellow workers for the truth? What should that kind of support look like? What might it involve in the real world? Now, I could try to answer that by giving you some personal stories and some examples, and I will do some of that. But what I primarily want to do this morning is find out what God says about it in His Word. So if you'll turn with me to John, sorry, 3 John, the tiny book of 3 John, we're going to find surprisingly that there's actually a book of the Bible that addresses this very issue of church missionary relationships. It's 3 John. Now, it's easy to miss 3 John. It's right after 1 and 2 John, and it's right before Jude and Revelation. So you can start at the back and just move the opposite direction. The reality is, is that this book is so tiny, it's easy to overlook. And in my own life and ministry for 20 years, I have pretty much overlooked this book until very recently becoming aware of the treasure and resources that it is for the local church as we seek to provide faithful missionary support. Now, despite it being such a tiny book, 3 John is actually worthy of a longer series of sermons because it has some incredible things to say about discipleship and leadership. But what I want to focus on this morning is specifically what it teaches us about how local churches can faithfully support missionary partners. So what we're going to do is this. Because the book is so small, we're going to actually read the whole thing, all 15 verses of it. Can you guys handle that? All right. So we want to familiarize ourselves with the text. And as we read the text, I want you to do two things. So you have an assignment right now. You can write it down, but it's not that hard. First of all, as you read it, I want you to try and identify the four or five primary characters in this book and how they relate to one another. I know God is a character, so we'll take him for granted. All right, he's already there. There's actually a ton of drama happening in this little book in the background. It's what in Mexico we'd call a telenovela. It's kind of like a soap opera going on here, all right? And then secondly, as we read it, I want you to look for any verses or principles that address this issue of missions and faithful missionary support. And to help you a little bit, I want to tell you right now that when it refers to the brothers, it's actually referring to a group of missionaries. That might help you a little bit. You guys ready? All right. 3 John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, 
accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. That is the word of the Lord. So who are the four or five main characters in this letter? Well, first of all, we have the Apostle John, who simply calls himself the elder in verse 1. Now, John was probably advanced in age at this point, but as an apostle commissioned by Jesus himself, he continues to have significant influence throughout the region as a spiritual authority and personally as a spiritual father to many of the churches and their leaders. John's writing is filled with, with deep, affectionate, almost flowery language as he calls his fellow believers his children in verse 4, his friends in verse 15, and he specifically calls Gaius beloved in verses 1, 5, and 10. However, not everyone is so happy about John's continued influence. Verses 9 through 11 make clear that a significant conflict has developed between John and another church leader named Diotrephes, a leader who, according to verse 9, does not acknowledge John's authority. So that's the first main character. The second main character is a man named Gaius. And he's the recipient of the letter. Verse 1 says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, Gaius must have been a pretty amazing guy because John has nothing but praise for him. He praises him in verses 3 through 4 for faithfully walking in the truth. He praises him in verses 5 through 8 for his faithful efforts to love and support the traveling missionaries. And like I already mentioned, three times in this short letter, John calls him beloved. Although Gaius had previously shown hospitality to missionaries, according to verses 5 and 6, in verses 6 through 8, John is writing him to let him know that there's a new group of missionaries coming his way and that they need Gaius' support in order to continue on in their ministry. So we have John, we have Gaius, and the third main character in the letter is actually a group of people, a group of missionaries who John calls the brothers in verses 3, 5, and 10. Now, we know these are, these are missionaries because according to verse 7, they had gone out for the sake of the name. They'd gone out for the sake of the Lord. They had gone out from their homes and places of familiarity and comfort 
in order to make Jesus known. Now, the English text calls them brothers, but this word actually allows for both men and women to have been included on these missionary teams. And that's something that we see throughout the New Testament, men and women serving together for the gospel. And this particular group of missionaries was likely led by a man named Demetrius, who we find in verse 12. Not to be confused with Diotrephes, who has the leadership problem. According to verse 7, as a group, these missionaries appear to have followed Paul's model of accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That is to say that they made a decision to not receive any financial support from the unbelievers they were trying to reach. As a result, they needed the support of existing churches and believers in order to provide for them along the way and enable their ministries to move forward. This is where Gaius and his church come in as fellow workers for the truth in verse 8. But this is also where things start to get pretty nasty with Diotrephes, who according to verse 10, refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. And that leads us to our, our fourth and final main character, Diotrephes. According to 3 John verses 9 through 11, Diotrephes is an influential church leader who has a pretty serious problem. According to verse 9, he likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. Diotrephes apparently viewed the ongoing influence of the Apostle John as a threat to his own position of power and preeminence. As a result, when the Apostle had sent him a letter, Diotrephes responded by rejecting John's apostolic authority, slandering the Apostle to others, refusing to, send, to receive the missionaries who had been sent by John, and then going so far as to kick out of the church anybody who wanted to support those same missionaries. His abusive leadership and its impact on the missionary community is one of the primary reasons this letter was written. And it's in sharp contrast to the behavior and attitude of his beloved Gaius. Now, to add a little more intrigue to the letter, it is unclear if Gaius is a member and leader in Diotrephes' church, or if he is a leader in a different local church in the area. Because if he's a member of Diotrephes' church, then Gaius is actually in danger of being kicked out for his support of the missionaries. On the other hand, if he's a leader in a, in a different church, then the Apostle John is actually drawing him into a regional conflict with another church. Either way, things could get pretty messy, right? Yeah. So those are the four main characters in 3 John. And as you can see, there's enough material here for a series of podcasts or a gritty mini-series on HBO Max, or at least for you guys, VidAngel. Um, but, but what I want to focus on this morning are, are four key insights from 3 John. Four insights that I believe ought to shape how we think about and engage faithful missionary support, both as local churches and as individual believers. So we're going to see that faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership, that it should be extravagant, that it should protect our missionaries, 
and that it should be given to faithful gospel workers. And I'll unpack each one of those. So first of all, we find that faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership. It should be rooted in partnership. In 3 John 1.8, John says, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers is a key phrase here. We ought to support missionaries like these so that we may be fellow workers for the truth of the gospel. So at the heart of missionary support is partnership. It's a way of thinking and acting that says, we are in this together. And that way of thinking and acting as fellow workers, as gospel partners, radically changes everything about the relationship. It means that we don't just give money or support to missionaries so that they can do their thing while we do our thing. To the contrary, we, we support missionaries because their thing is our thing. And our thing is their thing. The spread of the gospel both locally and internationally, the making of faithful disciples, is our mutual mission that we seek to fulfill together as fellow workers for the truth. As a local church, your primary area of focus may be here in Emporia. And as a missionary, my primary focus might be in Latin America. But the end goal, our shared mission, is the same. That all people might know the greatness and glory of Jesus and the saving power of His gospel. And that means that as a missionary, I am not simply a hired gun or a church employee or a line item in the church's budget. And you are not just a source of income or a means of financial support for me. Instead, we are fellow workers, partners in fulfilling the worldwide mission of God, both locally and internationally. Now, there are a lot of ways that local churches and believers can support missionaries as partners. In 3 John, Gaius is being specifically asked to provide hospitality to visiting missionaries, and to provide them with the financial support they need to continue on with their ministry. And you guys can literally do both those things, hospitality and financial support. In fact, you guys have done exactly those two things for my family. Last year as a church, you financially enabled us to come to Emporia and escape a pretty brutal quarantine in Mexico City. And then you provided my family with incredible hospitality, a home to live in and meals. And Pastor Dave gave us his car and tons of encouraging conversations and more meals and a, a great youth group to welcome my kids and more and more. You guys were and have been amazing fellow workers for the truth. There's actually a pretty endless number of ways that you can partner with missionaries in addition to hospitality and finances. You can partner with missionaries through regular prayer, writing them letters, sending fun care packages to remind them they haven't been forgotten, offering them your professional services, 
as a lawyer or doctor or dentist, providing childcare for them to attend meetings, providing administrative or technical support, helping them put up and maintain a website, and on and on. It's a ton of ideas. But if you really want to partner with missionaries, I would ask you to also do three particular things, all right? First of all, if you want to be good missionary partners, be good church members. Be faithful Christians where you are, serving faithfully right where you find yourself. If we're in this together, then your ministry here is just as important as my ministry there. Few things can make a missionary happier than coming back home and finding his supporting churches fully engaged in the work of the gospel right where they are. That's good partnership. Secondly, if you want to be good missionary partners, and this is especially for church leaders, I would encourage you to ask your missionaries for counsel. Ask them for their thoughts and wisdom as you think through ministry issues. Because partnership goes both directions. We both give and receive. It's honestly amazing to me how many churches will send missionaries to church plant and disciple and evangelize throughout the world, but they will never ask those same missionaries to help counsel or train them in those very areas. Like, that's insane. (laughs) Include your missionaries in your mission. And again, I thank you for including me in yours. And third, if you want to be good missionary partners, then maybe you should go. Maybe you should be the next missionary. Did you know that there is a special school where God helps us identify and equip and send new missionaries? Did you know that? It's called the church. It's you. If you have been a committed church member, discipled by godly leaders, faithful in service, loving Jesus, and equipped in the message and work of the gospel, then maybe you are the one who needs to lay aside the American dream and go. Maybe it's you. And if you're wondering if that might be you, that I encourage you to pray about it, talk to your local church leaders, and then in that order, maybe talk to me. We'll find something for you to do. That's what partnership can look like. Now, local churches truly partnering with missionaries and vice versa sounds like a great idea. But the truth is that good partnership can actually be harder to develop and maintain than you would think. The reality is that the relationship between local churches and their missionaries can easily grow cold and distant. That's just what happens when you live and minister on different continents, in different cultures, and in different language over the course of many years. It's really easy just to grow apart. On top of that, tensions can easily develop due to miscommunication, or differing expectations, or even slightly different ministry philosophies. I mean, even Paul and Barnabas and Mark had trouble working together, and they're on the same team. 
And Paul was an apostle. I don't have a silver bullet that will guarantee the health of every church missionary partnership. But 3 John does give us four characteristics that will go a long way in ensuring that we have healthy partnerships. The four characteristics are truth, faithfulness, effort, and love. Truth, faithfulness, effort, and love. And we find them in verse 8 and in verses 5 through 6. In 3 John 8, John says, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Then in 3 John, verses 5 through 6, John says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. Gaius' partnership was characterized by gospel truth, faithfulness, real effort, and tangible love. I don't have time to unpack each of those this morning, but I think it's safe to say that if our ministry relationships, both locally and internationally, are characterized by those same four characteristics, it will go a long way in ensuring that we have fruitful, healthy long-term partnerships. All right, so the first thing we find in 3 John is that faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership. Secondly, we find that faithful missionary support should be extravagant. It should be extravagant. 3 John 1.6 says this, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, in a manner worthy of God. Now, I almost use the word abundant to describe faithful missionary support here, but I don't think that does the text justice. I think John's telling us that we should be extravagant in our support. Third John 6 tells us that we should support our missionaries in a manner worthy of who? Of God Himself. So if God himself were to come to your church and ask for support, or if he were to send you a missionary and give you instructions to take care of him or her, how would you take care of him? What would your support look like? Would you give the missionary the the bare minimum in order to keep him humble? Would you give him just enough so you could say that you fulfilled your duty? Or would you provide for him lavishly and extravagantly as an act of worship to God? As 3 John 6 says, in a manner worthy of God. Now let me start off by saying that you as a church have extravagantly supported my family. So this is not a rebuke. You can take a breath of fresh air, all right? When you flew us out last year, And then when you received us this summer when we moved to Emporia, we were extravagantly cared for. We lacked nothing. We lacked nothing. And I also want to make clear that I don't know of any missionaries who are only serving the Lord for the money. I just want to make that clear. I don't know anybody like that. In fact, many pastors and missionaries could have taken their talents and education into the secular workforce and made a lot more money. 
But there is a strange and disturbing thing that happens when people begin to think about missionaries and pastors and their financial support. For some reason, we tend to think that they should live on the verge of poverty, that they should get the bare minimum, but not much more. I literally know a missionary who has once sent a used tea bag in a support package. Apparently, all she deserved were the leftovers. There are two cups in every bag. (laughs) There are many churches and mission agencies that function with this same faulty assumption, expecting or even demanding that their missionaries live with inadequate salaries and support. But John tells Gaius that he should send off the missionaries in a manner worthy of God. And in verse 8, he makes clear that it is also our moral duty to do the same, explicitly saying, therefore, we ought to support people like these, in verse 8. In Luke 10, 7, and in 1 Timothy 5, 18, both Jesus and Paul say the same thing. Talking specifically about gospel workers, they both say, the laborer deserves his wages. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, Paul says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, currently in the United States, we all know there is a shortage of workers, right? That's why you can make $13 an hour starting at McDonald's. I made $4.25 many years ago. Might be a little bit jealous. You can make $20 an hour at Tyson. And if you can throw and run like Patrick Mahomes, there are a number of NFL teams waiting to give you at least a few million dollars. The salary of every job is dependent on its perceived value and usually the cost of living in a given area. So how valuable is the work of someone who leaves everything behind and dedicates themselves to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus? How valuable is the work of someone who prepares themselves for years in order to cross national, linguistic, and cultural barriers in order to offer forgiveness and eternal life to all who will believe in Jesus? oftentimes risking their lives and their families in the process. How much is that worth? What's the perceived value? $13 an hour? $20? $50? A million? Now, my, my point is not that missionaries should be millionaires. My point is that we should send them out in a manner worthy of God, as workers worthy of their wages. Now, of course, support would have looked differently 2,000 years ago than it does today. Back then, I don't think they had effective banking systems and healthcare systems in place. The question is not what it would have looked like to send them out in a manner worthy of God 2,000 years ago. The question is what might it look like today? Because I want to be very practical this morning. What would it look like today? So here's a little exercise. We've all had bad jobs and bad bosses, right? And some of you are stuck in one of those right now, and I'm sorry. But I would like you to take a second and consider what a good job 
or even a great job might look like. Think practically, things like salary, health insurance, retirement, vacation time, even cost of living adjustments due to inflation. How should a good company provide for its employees? Your answer to that question provides a good starting point for considering how we and our churches and mission agencies should support gospel workers in a manner worthy of God. Now, on a, on a very personal note, in preparing this sermon, I realized that my wife and I had not increased our support for various missionaries for something like 10 to 20 years. You don't have to be a genius to know that due to inflation alone, that means that we are actually giving less now than we were giving before. And that's messed up. And we had to make that right. Because we too need to support missionaries in a manner worthy of God. Which leads us to our third point. First of all, faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership. Secondly, it should be extravagant in its provision. And third, faithful missionary support should protect our missionaries. It should protect our missionaries. I want to read 3 John verses 9 through 11 again, and I ask that you listen to it from the point of view of the missionaries, the brothers, okay? Listen to it from the point of view of the missionaries. It says this, 3 John verses 9 through 11, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. In this passage, there's a serious conflict between John and Diotrephes. And it seems pretty clear that John is in the right. But who initially bears the brunt of this conflict? According to verse 10, it's the brothers, which again refers to these traveling gospel workers who we would call missionaries. Because of this conflict with John, it says in verse 10 that Diotrephes refuses to welcome the missionaries and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So who is left without food and a place to stay due to the conflict between John and Diotrephes? Who is it? It's the missionaries. Who is dependent on Gaius' support in order to continue on in their missionary journey? It's the missionaries. There is something that characterizes the missionary life that very few talk about. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Missionaries by nature are deeply vulnerable. Now, I don't mean weak. I mean vulnerable. For example, my wife was raised on the mission field in rural Mexico. 
And when they arrived, her family could not find a place to live because the local priests would not allow anyone to rent them a home. They were vulnerable. Missionaries are vulnerable as migrants to a new country. Under new laws and cultural expectations, we are vulnerable to new sicknesses and diseases. We are vulnerable to soul-crushing loneliness. We are vulnerable to miscommunication in a new language. And we are vulnerable to people's acceptance or rejection of us. And that is true for us as missionaries, both when we go to the mission field and when we return to the U.S. On top of all that, as missionaries, we are also vulnerable in our relationships with our supporters and supporting churches. Churches add support and they cut support for all sorts of reasons, many of which we have very little control over, but each of which deeply affects us and it affects us more than it affects them. Missionaries are also especially vulnerable to being misunderstood. Our ministry situations tend to look very different than that of the average U.S. church. We're also gone for long periods of time. We work under different ministry and legal environments. And if that weren't complicated enough, U.S. churches often have specific expectations for their missionaries that remain unstated. And maybe even worse, each local U.S. church, you probably don't realize this, but each local U.S. church tends to develop its own theological vocabulary. But those things are rarely communicated to the missionaries themselves. Words like justice, community, and reconciliation can all be understood as biblical virtues or as code words for liberal emergent, or woke. It all depends on the church and the city and the context. So missionaries oftentimes just end up being confused or under suspicion or misunderstood and very possibly with less financial support the following month. They are vulnerable. Similar to the missionaries in 3 John, we as missionaries are also extremely vulnerable to being dragged into whatever local and regional conflicts our churches in the United States are dealing with at that moment, leading to very real relational, financial, and ministerial consequences for us. I have personally been accused, explicitly or implicitly, of being emergent, a Marxist, a liberal, and a fundamentalist even though I don't think that I am any of those things. The reality is that missionaries don't always understand the particular theological or political debates that are happening in your church. And we certainly aren't aware if there are dicey internal leadership or membership issues in your church. But when a church's missions committee and elders haven't clearly defined their roles, guess who gets caught up in the conflict? the missionaries. We do. When believers make masks or vaccinations a core gospel issue, now I'm stepping on toes, I know that, 
Guess who gets caught up in the conflict from across the ocean? We do. The vulnerable situation of the missionaries in 3 John may seem kind of extreme, with a church leader actually refusing to accept the missionaries and then kicking people out who do. But is it really so hard to imagine? I know of a young missionary who found himself dragged into a conflict not so different than what we find in 3 John. This young missionary had been sent out by his home church as an ordained elder of the church and of their model for missions. However, just 18 months later, in the middle of his first term of missionary service, the church decided to entirely cut his financial support, which was a quarter of his budget. The church elders explicitly stated that the missionary had not sinned, but that they wanted to use the money for another project in the church. The missionary was confused and explained that, humanly speaking, the loss of support would force him and his family to leave the mission field. The elder over missions replied, that doesn't make sense. If I lost my job, I wouldn't have to leave the country. Chew on that for a minute. The elders then went on to cut this young missionary's support, demand that he not contact anyone else in the church to support him. Remember, this was his home church. And then they tried to damage the missionary's reputation before the church and even with his own parents who had been members. What the young missionary didn't know is that there was a power struggle going on among the church leaders. And somehow from a thousand miles away, the missionary had been viewed as a threat. I can't deny that when I read 3 John, that story comes to mind. I was 26 years old with a wife and a newborn baby. The value of the dollar had just collapsed in Spain. And we felt really, really vulnerable. But there were others who stepped up to protect us. They made clear that we were not alone. Churches stepped up to financially support us, some of whom still support us to this day. And most of all, the Lord stepped up, sending me a man I had never met who offered to cover the entire missing amount and more for the rest of our ministry in Spain. That was pretty confirming. Faithful missionary support should protect our missionaries. That is one of the primary reasons John is writing this letter. He is protecting them by sending a letter of recommendation and asking guys to do what Diotrephes had failed to do as an abusive leader. John used his apostolic authority to protect the faithful missionaries his churches had sent out. He was for them. And I would ask that you do the same. If a mission agency is not requiring adequate financial support, advocate for the missionary. If the missionary family is struggling, go send some leaders to encourage and lovingly counsel them. If there is a leadership problem on the mission field, stand in the gap for them as gospel partners, believing the best about them. 
When there is miscommunication, be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Be faithful to fulfill your financial commitments. And remember what I said earlier? Truth, faithfulness, effort, and love. That's how we partner. That's how we come alongside one another and we protect one another. So faithful missionary support should be rooted in partnership, should be extravagant in its provision, and should protect our missionaries. And finally, it should be given to faithful gospel workers. It should be given to faithful gospel workers. Not everyone who asks to be sent or supported should be. In fact, in 2 John 1.7, John says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. In 2 John 1.10, he says, Therefore, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. There are reasons not to give. And here in 3 John, Paul, John does not give us a step-by-step policy manual for how to choose who to support. But it does give us some pretty valuable principles that should definitely be found in any church's philosophy of missions. Let me go over them quickly. Who are faithful gospel workers? Who should we support? Faithful missionary support should be given to faithful gospel workers, first of all, who are sent out for the sake of the name. That is to say, they are gospel workers, not just do-gooders or random nonprofits. The priority of the church should be to support those who are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission by planting and strengthening disciple-making churches and so fulfilling the Great Commission of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. That's who we should support. Secondly, faithful gospel workers are those who are thoughtful in their missiology, thoughtful in their understanding and approach to missions. In 3 John 7, John says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. These missionaries had made a choice to not accept financial support from the unbelievers they were trying to reach. That was the same policy that Paul used, and it's actually not a biblical command. But it shows that these missionaries had thought through their missiology. They had thought through their approach to missions and had made a decision to preach the gospel free of charge so that the message would not be confused with selfish interest. That shows a thoughtful missiology, and we should support people like that. Third, faithful gospel workers are those who embrace appropriate accountability. They embrace appropriate accountability. In 3 John, the missionary brothers, it says, they came and testified to your truth. And then in verse 6, that they testified to your love before the church. Faithful missionaries are not lone rangers. They don't buck against authority or create their own little kingdoms so that they don't have to be accountable to anybody. To the contrary, the text indicates that these missionaries had been sent out by a church or by a network of churches, and they had returned to give account to those churches about what God had done in and through them. Now, ministry accountability can work itself out in many ways, and often mission agencies can play an important role in helping churches to do that while they're serving on the mission field overseas. But the point is that we should support missionaries who embrace appropriate biblical accountability. And finally, faithful gospel workers are those who are recommended by trustworthy people. 
They're recommended by trustworthy people. It says in verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. If I'm right that Demetrius is the leader of this missionary team, then this letter is essentially a letter of recommendation. Ideally, we are raising up missionaries from within, and we already know their character because we know them, and our elders know them. But the reality is that it is challenging enough and financially difficult enough that usually missionaries need multiple churches to support them. And that means that churches can receive dozens or even hundreds of requests for missionary support. How do you choose? I would propose that you give priority to those who have been recommended by trustworthy people. Those who carry the strong recommendation of their sending church or of other trusted pastors or of other like-minded ministries. So to summarize all of this, faithful gospel support should be given to faithful gospel workers by faithful gospel churches. As international missionaries and as the local church, we have together been given the unique privilege and responsibility of making Jesus known in Emporia, Kansas, and to the ends of the earth. Therefore, as it says in John 3, 8, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Father, may you enable us to be fellow workers for the truth, serving you faithfully and each other faithfully, that you might be most fully known. In Jesus' name. Amen.